0: Oh, and welcome back to Spy Hearts Podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. We're here continuing our celebration of the festive season by taking a look at 1989's The Package. And Cam, we have a very special guest joining us today.
1: Yes, director Andrew Davis, who um, has helmed such films as Under Siege, The Fugitive, Above the Law, and... Also, 1989's The Package, which we talked about this week with the guys from Spocklight. Had a lot of fun talking about that movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the guy is responsible for some of your favorite 80s and 90s films. So I think without further ado, let's take it to the man himself, Andrew Davis. Cam, roll that interview. And joining us on the show now, the director of this week's film, The Package. You may know him. From such films as The Fugitive, Under Siege, Above the Law, holds It is none other than Mr. Andrew Davis. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Glad to be
2: with you. Thank you, Scott. Uh,
0: it's absolute honor to have you on the show. I've been doing a bit of a deep dive on your back catalog uh, recently. I've definitely been enjoying these Seagal films. But uh, we are here to talk about this week's film, The Package. So I guess the first question to open this up, how did you get connected with the film?
2: Well, let's see. Uh, I think what happened was I did uh, Above the Law and it was a success. And in and, and Orion Pictures uh, knew of me from uh, Code of Silence. I had done a picture for them. So Mike Medavoy recommended I be the director of this picture with Gene Hackman. And um, uh, it was very, very, flattered and excited to be working with one of the greatest actors that we had at that time. And um, the story was originally all set in Camp David. It had a very narrow window of, of, of what was possible visually with it. And I thought it should be uh, definitely set in a, a city and in an urban environment. So, of course, Chicago was my home and I worked there before. And And so I convinced them to do that. But but what really happened was I was able to integrate the whole history of the Kennedy assassination and the Patsy and Oswald and the whole, I had done a lot of research into that, you know, and, and understood all the strange amalgam of people who were interested in being part of that assassination and who may have been a part of it. And so we wove that together to become the fabric of the package conspiracy.
1: And a lot of your movies deal with conspiracies, you know, whether it's, you know, The Fugitive even has kind of a conspiracy at the core of it. With this movie, is that like an interest of you to kind of bring that to your work? Something that adds for you, like, because a lot of these movies are more action-based, does that kind of open up the world for you delving into like these conspiracies? Uh, It's exactly right. I think
2: that, you know, I was a journalism major in the late 60s at Illinois, University of Illinois. And, you know, I was frustrated because we were being asked to repeat lies the State Department were putting out about what was going on, in the status of the war. And um, so I think that I was always interested, in, I don't call them conspiracies, but basically, what's really happening behind the scenes? Who's really behind these policies and these issues? Uh, and how does that affect reality? How does it affect our lives? So. You know, this is a very relevant story. I mean, in terms of the issue of atomic weapons, nuclear weapons, it couldn't be more timely today. And as a matter of fact, I've just finished a novel uh, that deals with a similar theme about, you know, a terrible accident that takes place in the world with some weapons that are being tested by the Russians and and a a bunch of people die and now they want to have a peace conference. And it's the same thing. The generals don't really want to give up their weapons. And they go through the motions and acting like they want to have detente. And it, was, it was much healthier than with Gorbachev and Bush and post Reagan. But today it would be near impossible to get uh, Mr. Putin to give up his weapons. So, 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 so the point is that in terms of conspiracies and storytelling, uh, you know, the, the, the fugitive dealt with the, you know, a drug protocol that said, that this company was not going to make billions of dollars on a drug, and they had to shut this doctor up. They had to make make him a, f- a murderer to get past his understanding what the dangers of this drug were. So yes, there things like above the law dealt with with the Central American uh, policies of what we were doing. You know. Anyway, so yes, I do like to take <coughs> relevant topical things and weave them into stories and. And the basis of the commerciality is sometimes it's if you're dealing with scholars, there's action involved, but you can also be very political.
1: I always appreciated that, um, you know, when these movies were coming out, I remember they would be often talked about as thinking persons action movies and that they delivered the thrills that definitely got audiences into the theater. But there would be that extra material to dig into. And it's something that I think is often Lost a little bit nowadays. I really enjoyed these movies back in you know the '90s and '80s. Huh. Well, you were younger and more
2: optimistic.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm broken now. <laughs> um,
2: well, I, I you know I think there, there there is it's possible to make a relevant movie today, and, but they, you know if it doesn't have Marvel characters and green screen, I don't know. That's not so easy to make. You know, really, there are there are some. There of course there have been some very relevant movies made about. Uh, lot of issues in the last 10 years but uh, I hope that you know we can get back to telling stories that are connected to the news but not necessarily um, embedded with what has to be happening that day because it takes a year or so to make a move how do you keep up with the, the themes of what's going on I'm sure there'll be lots of movies with Trumpian type characters in them in the future
1: oh definitely
0: well, one of the things we noted when we were talking about the film earlier this week is just how great Gene Hackman is in this film. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about with the casting. Obviously, you were brought on board for the film. Was Gene already cast at this point, or did you go through casting with him and Tommy Lee and all, that, all those lots?
2: No, Gene was already cast. Gene was part of the, the package.
0: And, <laughs> uh,
2: and uh, uh, Tommy, I've always, I this is this first time I worked with Tommy, and since I've done two other films with him, uh, and he was somebody that I had seen in a, a film called Backroads. He played a fighter, and I always just thought he, he had a real reality and toughness to him. And uh, and I've told the story before, but uh, when we, when I met him, when he came to Chicago after he was cast and he would agreed to take the part, we connected because it turns out I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a servo. Croatian, black, Mexican—a very mixed neighborhood—and the quarterback of my high school football team was a guy named George Lalich, who was the quarterback for Tommy at Harvard. Right. They had played together in the same team, and in fact, that Lalich's father was a bit of a gangster. Sorry, George, who was who was who was betting against his own son's team uh, against Yale. You know, there's a famous movie about Yale and Harvard. Anyway. So, so that's how Tommy got cast. But Gene, Gene was already on board, and then John Heard we cast, and uh, Joanna Cassidy, and Dennis Franz, I had worked with on my first movie, Stony Island, before he was known at all. And um, it was just you know looking at the cast, it's an amazing cast, and and uh, and I was very very blessed to have Hackman. Hackman was tough, you know. He, I was this young director, didn't know how to sort of handle talent in a certain way, you know, and I learned to sort of step back and let him find his own thing, you know, so you don't know, tell Gene Hackman how to hold the apple. And not that I have in the future. But it was it was, it was a really great experience for me. And I think I, one of the best reviews I got after the film came out, I was in LA, it was after the some awards thing and I bumped into Tom Hanks so I didn't really know very well. He says, man, I really liked the package. It was a really great movie. And if you'll notice Spielberg used that same Gleinecker Bridge with, that they come over from Berlin in, in that yeah. film. They did. What was the film they made together?
0: Bridge of Spies.
2: Bridge of Spies. It was the same exact setup, coming over the bridge. You know, we shot it in Chicago, you know, on the Chicago Avenue. But um, anyway, I felt that I knew that he was aware of that bridge for sure.
1: Well, you know, you bring up Chicago, and obviously you were you know, born in Chicago, and you've shot several movies there. I'm just curious, you know, what is it about Chicago as like a cinematic place? Because I think, you know, moviegoers have a relationship with, you know, New York or Paris or places like that in movies. But there's been a lot of work done in Chicago. What is it about that city that really pops on screen?
2: Well, architecturally, it's amazing. You know, the city burnt down in in the late 1800s and was rebuilt and uh, they had some of the most uh, uh, creative, uh, visionary architects who were coming out of there, Louis Sullivan, Frank Lloyd Wright, all kinds of different people. And they made a plan. They, they took the rubble of the city and pushed it out into the lake. So they built this beautiful lakefront with all kinds of museums and parks and, and a place where everybody, poor or rich, could go and enjoy the lake. So that's one thing. The reality was there were not very many movies made. The film business started in Chicago actually. There's a studio called SNA where Charlie Chapman worked. And, the, and, then, and, and then they later, a lot of the studio has came out of the, the theaters in Chicago. Some of the guys from Universal and stuff like that, they were all running theaters in Chicago. Um, but Chicago didn't have very many movies made because during Mayor Daly's routine, you couldn't fire a gun and have a movie in a movie in Chicago. He was so afraid of the gangster image of Al Capone. You know, if you go to Europe, I was a kid going to Europe from Chicago to go. Oh, Al Capone! You know, that that that. And I think that um, it's, it's funny because Daly's funeral was in my first movie called Stony Island, a film about young musicians in Chicago, and uh, and so then years later, I was able to put the St. Patrick's Day break, which I wanted to shoot with Daily, I couldn't do it. He died in The Fugitive. Right. And so so that, that was a, but I think, you know, I don't take total credit for it, but I think The Fugitive really opened up Chicago. I know it did because studios realized you could make a world-class movie with a local crew and a lot of local talent. And after that, you know, I can tell you from the people who called me, the Batman got made there. Uh, Shia LaBeouf worked on uh, the, what's the robot movie? He did the Termin Transformers was done there. Yeah, you know, and lot, lots of movies. And now Dick uh, Wolf has taken it over for to doing his, his CSI stuff. And that's what is it, Chicago Law and Chicago Fire and Chicago whatever. You know,
0: PD I think is the other one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
2: anyway, there, it, it's it's become a major place to have a good crew, have great cooperation, and have access to everything you would get in New York and LA.
0: Now, sort of casting your mind back to the shooting of the film, uh, back in, in shooting in Chicago, is there any particular memories you have of on set, any sort of obstacles you overcame when you were shooting it, anything like that? Um,
2: well, one of the obstacles was we, we shot in, uh, the opening uh, that takes place in Berlin. We shot mm-hmm. the whole movie in Chicago, except for a little bit in Berlin. Um, we did go to Berlin, but it was snowing, and we had to come back to do some other stuff, and we didn't have any snow, so we had to make snow. And finally, it snowed again. You know, so that, that was one of the issues of continuity with some snow. Um, it was it was raining the night we were shooting on the bridge, and there was a question about whether the gaffer was going to feel comfortable with keeping the lights on with the rain and the electricity and electrocuting people, those kind of things. Um, uh, let's see what else, I think that was basically it, you know, there was, there were, there was, uh, I think that we didn't have any real production problems. It was cold and, uh, but everybody was bundled up and, you know, it, it gave the film a lot of texture to have all that cold weather.
0: It, it's something I actually noted was I've never seen people look so cold in a film before. So you definitely capture the essence of Christmas time. Well, what's Chain
2: reaction? They're even colder.
1: <laughs>
0: Fair yeah.
2: enough. It was so cold one night in chain reaction. The fire department pulled their people and they said, you know, we're not going to, we can't work in these conditions. So I said to the crew, okay, we can finish and not have to come back, or we can go home and have to come back. And I said, who wants to stay? And nobody raised their hand. <laughs> Fair.
0: Uh, well, I, I also mentioned Christmas there because it's uh, kind of under there's an underlying theme with Christmas in this film, obviously, it's set at Christmas time. Was that something that came from the script, or was it something that you sort of you added in, suggested, something to, to sort of paint the picture of the world?
2: Well, it had to do with peace. Mm. The Prince of Peace, you know, and, and then thematically about getting along and the joyous world. And I don't remember exactly the dates we were there, but I'm sure we were there close to Christmas. Or preparing at least so it was a way of decorating that L station where Tommy Lee shoots from you know with all of those hidden things how how terrible to have a hat and assassin hidden behind Santa Claus you know
1: one aspect of your films I find very effective when I look at whether it's you know the fugitive or the package is that a lot of them deal with characters being hunted and whether it's you know Gene Hackman being hunted you know throughout the movie but also pursuing Tommy Lee Jones yeah And one of the things I think is very effective is that whenever I see, you know, your movies and the deal with this, the person doing the hunting is as smart as the person who's pursuing them and that it really helps elevate the tension. I would love to know just from you in terms of casting and then directing these movies about creating a dynamic between the two figures and making that really work and building up tension on screen.
2: Well, the bad guy is always the most interesting character. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, it's your hero who you have empathy for and you're cheering for, but it's the bad guy you go, you're scared about, or you're interested. Why is he doing this? Or what's he going to do next? Right. I think I remember meeting with some kind of a strange producer. Time. He may have been British actually.
0: Instantly strange.
2: <laughs> he, he was a financier. Right? And he said, you know, the most successful movies are all about chases, chase and escape, chase and escape, you know? And so, it's, if you go back and look over a lot of movies, it's sort of that case. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I suppose if you know if you if you've done something right or something wrong, and somebody wants to stop you or prevent you, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be you know in, in danger and on the run.
1: And you frequently, you know, uh, you know Gene Hackman, Tommy Lee Jones, like these are very accomplished actors, and that continues through much of your work. And what do they bring to that type of storytelling that really seems to work in its favor? Everything. Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, it's interesting because you look back at these things. How did we do this? Who wrote those words? How did it get to be so real? And, you know, because you're so invested in it when you're doing it and everything sort of makes sense and tied together. You step back and look at it again. You go, there was a lot of work to be done to create that, you know. I mean, Hackman was, you know, he's just a powerhouse. He was fantastic. And Tommy and everybody Joanna and and Heard, I've heard, I worked with him again on The Guardian. Unfortunately, he died young. But John Hurd was really good in that movie. I love that scene where at the end of the movie, where Hackman and Heard had this confrontation. He's just, you know, we haven't had war in 50 years because of our nuclear weapons. And, you know, he talks about a nut and your nutcase. And I'd rather be in Washington rather than Russia fighting the Russians. You know, it was very powerful. But anyway, Hackman, actors are everything. If you don't have the right actors there, it's, it's not going to work. Now, I've worked with some non-actors and had to make them into characters that you cared about and loved them. But like an Under Siege, Tommy Lee's in the movie. Tommy Lee's in the movie more than cigar.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, yeah. there's more of that. You know, and in, in Code of Silence, you've got uh, Dennis Franz, uh, Dennis Farina, who was still a cop at the time in that movie. Right. You know, and 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 uh, Henry Silva, who just died, was in that. Movie, you know, so you, you've got you've got all these different kinds of people that have to support them and give them morality if they're not great actors.
1: And I came across an interview with you talking about your work. And one thing I thought was really interesting, we were talking about some of your collaborations with Tommy Lee Jones. And I believe the package was also referenced in that conversation about just him kind of improving and how he had very strong instincts for helping, you know, in a case like The Fugitive, where there was, you know, I no script issues along the way and improvising and come up with some ideas. And that's something I don't hear talked about a lot with Tommy Lee Jones. I would just love to know from you working with him, Sort of his instincts for that sort of thing.
2: Well, he's a, he's a major talent as a, as a director and a writer and, a, and as an actor. You know, and um, you're stupid not to try to take advantage of whatever somebody has to offer. I mean, I, you come there with what, I mean, on The Fugitive, the script was not in great shape. And we were literally writing it every day on the set. You know, I knew what I had to accomplish each day. But the details and the words and all this stuff, so that comes out of the reality of having these actors who are playing Joey Pantoliano was critical to that dynamic, helping Tommy Mm -hmm. play off each other. Uh, I don't remember a lot of improvisation on the package. I do remember that Gene, it was funny, Gene was... Going through the script, said we don't need this line and we don't need this line. We're trying to cut some lines, and Tommy got upset because he was cutting some of Tommy's lines. You know? <laughs> and and uh, he went to the producer. And he says he's he's fucking with my kids. He's taking my lines away. He can't do that, you know. And it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty, but uh, it turned out great anyway.
0: Well, you uh, you mentioned off air before we hit record that you'd sort of gone back through the package a little bit on a Blu-ray today, and just something I was curious about: what's your favorite sequence from the film
2: you know i think i think besides the great acting and the and the content of what they say and how they relate to each other i i am, i'm really happy with the scope of the movie the idea of this p pe- the beginning the, the the peace conference in berlin where they're where they're planning on the on the on the gathering and you've got all these People together, the generals and Russians and Americans talking together and conspiring, and then the 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 scale of of the motorcades coming into the city and the buildup of of this big event. I thought that that was that was pretty neat. I I like the scale and the scope of of the the images that set the the importance of this event in place.
0: It's definitely very different from the concept of just having it at Camp David. It's (laughs) a much wider scope there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was it was sort of replacing Dallas in the sense of the, of the assassination, thing, you know, looking down and hitting hidden away in some kind of building, looking down on things. You know. um, I, I. Uh, well, one of the scenes that's m- my most favorite is the scene in the plane between Tommy Lee and Gene. You know, he says, he says, what, you read a book?
1: Hmm.
2: He says, you don't know where I'm going, you know. So that that I thought that was great, and and, and that was they both at the top of their game there. You know,
1: and um, I would love to know just about your action direction in this movie, and you would, you know develop skills going forward with things like you know the fugitive. But um, one of the things I really appreciate in your work is that you can make the action feel chaotic and alive, but at the same time, there's a humanity to all of the action scenes. And I would love to know just your approach to action, because it really does and did at the time stand out from a lot of the other people doing action, at, you know, in, in film.
2: Well, the word action is funny. Mm. Action. what is
1: actions? Fighting,
2: running, shooting, jumping, chasing. You know, that's sort of what action is. Um, and I think that the, 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 the rule is keep it real.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Keep it human uh make it feel like you're there as part of it you know today with the digital world and slowing up the speeds of the camera and being able to do anything you want to do it, you know you you see these chases and you go oh, my god how did they do that i don't know I, I you know it's quite amazing but when it's real it really gets you i saw something the other day there's like there's a the movie one of the movies is up for best film from colombia Best foreign film from Colombia. There's a sequence where these kids, these gaminas, are jumping on the back of a truck, and two kids are on a bike with with lanyards hooked onto the back of this truck, and they're going down these mountain roads like this on their bikes. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen because it's real.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this was there's nothing fabricated. And I think that's the difference. Today, people know it's all digital.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They know it's it's not really real. I mean, that the, the train crash and the fugitive was 99% real and that you feel it, you feel it. And then, you know, there was a few visual effects shots. So anyway, the, the, the rule of thumb would be keep it as honest and real as you can and don't go overboard with close-ups and little inserts and things like that.
1: Like there's the sequence where there's the two hikers that leads to, you know, the car accident and like the shootout and what I, in the package and what I love about it is it's very messy, intentionally. So like it feels like something you're actually you know watching that could be happening and that's something that i think as you said you know sometimes inserts or when they start doing overly showy camera work it can kind of take away from the reality of it but like sequences like that in the package and in a lot of your work i just am consistently impressed by well thank you what about holes holes too yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah those lizards you know that's right <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, opening up sort of the floor now, uh, yeah, with the package, but your wider filmography. Yeah, you, know, you spoke about working with Gene Hackman, obviously established career, definitely by that point. But Steven Seagal, his first film, *Above the Law*, and you go on to work with him again in *Under Siege*. We had this question from a couple of our listeners. But what was it like to work with Steven?
2: Well, on, on *Above the Law*, it was easy because he had his ego hadn't gone crazy, you know, at that point. And uh, we agreed politically. There was a, during Iran-Contra, and we agreed politically about what was going on. And there were some very scary characters that he brought onto the set uh, that later in Under Siege. That um, uh, were were part. There was a fabric of political uh, conspiracy and CIA stuff and things like that that he was really interested in doing. I don't know what was was really. You know, when I did we did under. Uh, did above the law. This I was handed a different script, and they said, "You know, we'd like you to look at the script." And I said, "Well, maybe John Boy could play this part." And he said, well. We want you to meet this guy Stephen Seagal. I said, "Who's Stephen Segal?" Well, he's Michael Ovitz's uh, karate teacher. Michael Ovitz was the biggest agent in Hollywood at the time. So I met him, and he said, "I picked you. I saw Code of Silence, and I think that you should direct my movie." I'm, they're going to try to make me an actor star. I said, "Well, we got to do screen tests." So we went to Chicago and shot a screen test with him and with and Kelly LeBrock, who was his, his, his girlfriend at the time and uh, came back and in the studio said, wow, this is really great. You know, they liked what I would shot. I said, I think you're making the wrong movie with this guy. I said, whether it's true or not, he's got these stories about going over to Asia and Japan and he being undercover with the CIA. And I said, I want to re- I want to do a movie that's based upon what he says his life is about or the- some of these themes and wrap it around this Iran-Contra conspiracy was going on. And they said, uh, you know, how long will it take? And there was gonna be a writer's strike. And I said, five weeks. And we wrote that script. I've got Ron Chuset who wrote Alien and Stephen Pressfield who later wrote some very great novels and stuff. And we we worked it out and we knocked it out. And so um, he was easy to work with in those days. And then when we, by the time we did Under Siege, uh, you know, he was a, he had done several other movies. Some of had done so so, and uh, I was I, I met Peter mcgregor Scott, who had been working with him as a producer, and we became very close partners. We wound up doing five movies, six movies together, including the Fugitive. And you know, he was a pain in the butt. You know, I, to get him to smile, you know, and you know, and he he did fine. I mean, the the movie works with him and, and it, it, it's believable and he made his own contributions to the action or the technology but um you know it was like it wasn't as much fun as blah blah blah.
0: right we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair We're putting out the call for your support.
1: That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes, where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The longest goodnight commentary is live, and there's more holiday fun. We're getting a little romantic this season because we're looking at the 2003 romantic comedy, Love Actually.
0: And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy heart today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx.
1: Now... To me, Under Siege always really just, Sean, because of Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Busey as your villains. And just the energy they bring to every scene. And I think it's a really strong contrast be- between sort of this stoic hero, you know, the Seagal type, which you work with a lot of, it seems, stoic heroes in your work. But I would love to know just about working with these kind of larger-than-life villains and uh, getting those performances across.
2: Well, that was a ball. We had a mm-hmm. great time making Under Siege, you know, because... We were all down in, in, Ala- in, in Alabama. We, had, we found a battleship that was close enough to the Missouri that we could use the guts of. And we built inside uh, the sets inside of a hangar that was nearby in Fairhope, Alabama. But Busey was wonderful. I mean, I gave him the book from the ship, the Missouri's book, you know, the history. And he's, oh Andy, I gotta dress up. I gotta dress up like a woman. You know, I gotta do this thing and drag I said, okay, and the studio went, oh my God, and shoot it both ways, you know. Well, we, we never thought about it because it was so funny for him to do what he did. And Tommy's character was originally sort of Elton John-ish, you know, a little more fay. And I said, know, better be Paul Butterfield or Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know. And and so he, he, he and my brother's band was there when we recorded some of the stuff, the music that he was part of. Uh, Billy and the Bale Jumpers, I think. So. Mm. And, uh, and, and he hadn't done commercials before that. And all these guys who worked with my brother, studio musicians, they said, Tom, you should be doing voiceover work. Well, shortly after that, he started doing beer commercials and things like that. But it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a lot of fun to make that film.
1: Was there a lot of challenges in terms of having the more you know, restricted location you know, inside the interiors of the battleship?
2: No, we, had, we, had the, we, we built what we needed to build. And we had the real thing for the scope and scale of some of it. And then I'm sure today we would be different, but we were able to let the ocean sort of be out there. It wasn't, you know, and we did, we did shoot some real Missouri, USS Missouri stuff with the waves and the dolphins jumping off that James Cameron wanted to use for Titanic. He wanted to use those as of (laughs) the dolphins. But uh, no, we we had, there was a submarine there we were able to use and we we built the submarine. Uh, that the, the Korean submarine that pulls up alongside the Missouri, we built that tug of plastic.
0: <laughs> well, you're looking at sort of the package. There's definitely some stunts in that film, but Under Siege has some fantastic stunt work in that film and just action set pieces is a plenty. What's some of your favorite sort of action sequences you put together for Under Siege? Like, what's your top one, your, your favorite shot?
2: I mm, haven't looked at that in a while. Let's see, favorite action sequences. Uh, well, why don't you tell me a couple that you remember, and I'll and I'll respond to that. I know that when when Tommy gets blown back from the the, the big sixteen-inch gun going off, and he just slides across the deck of the of the of the ship. I like that.
0: I did not see that coming in the film, by the way. I did not think he would go flying across the screen. <laughs> it was great stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I just, I just like the mechanics of, you know, seeing these missiles being loaded onto the submarine and the night, the night shots, swimming around the, with the guys in the water, the seals in the water, swimming around the boat. Um, th- that, was, that was a lot of fun. And, um, um, you know, what, I would say probably, you know, this, this, the shock of the, of the takeover of the mess hall. Mm, yeah. You know, when they take over the ship. The mechanics of the cutting back and forth, all the different places on the ship, and you know where, the, where these 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 caterers and these these mercenaries have taken over. That was pretty interesting. I also like the sequence around the big table. You know, the at the end, you know, where where you have all of these characters talking about what's going on. They did, they didn't want me to build that. They said, "Well, just you know, have an office." They said, no, no, you've got to have this big room with all of this power. You know, and. uh, some of the guys in that sequence were actually real yeah. scary characters.
1: The knife fight between um, Tommy Lee Jones and Seagal is also incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah,
2: Yeah. well, that, that came out of Steven's, you know, background, you know, and, and Tommy was game. He was, he was very, very, he's, he's, I remember him saying, this guy's strong. You know, Seagal was strong and, and he'd hurt a lot of people. You know, Seagal wouldn't pull punches enough sometimes, you know, yeah.
0: I, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't dive a little bit into The Fugitive, which is definitely my introduction to you. I think it, easily one of the best films of the 90s, without shadow of a doubt. The one question I had, and it's interesting because I watched it again the other day to refresh my memory on the film. What do you think is the sort of secret sauce that makes that film still stand up now? It's easily one of the best sort of action f- f- films of all time.
2: I don't think people look at it as an action film per se. I mean, it has an action, a lot of action elements and chases and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, you know, you, you get very invested in in Harrison's character.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I remember when we, we showed the film to them, to the studio and to Harrison, the first time, you know, I think, and it, 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 it Tommy and Harry, they didn't think this film was going to be much. They did. They had no idea that it was going to be so successful. You know, they didn't know what we were doing because I was the only one who started was putting all these little pieces together and improvising. And they didn't quite, you know, they don't have a lot of screen time together. So, you know, anyway, uh, Harrison, that after he breaks down in the interrogation and he's crying and the camera moves in on his face, he leaned over and gave me a kiss, you know, because he realized before Tommy even got on the screen, how invested you were gonna be in this character. He, had, he got you by the heart. And, um, and so that's why I think the film was so successful. You have great empathy for this guy. Plus Tommy is such a cold calculating guy who develops this warmth and the empathy and logic for this guy can't be, can't be guilty. It doesn't make any sense. So you're cheering for the bad guy to become the decent guy, you know. And, and, and besides that, the cutting and the music score are really critical to that movie. James Newton mm-hmm. did a great job at that. And I think that was the second time because he did the package, too. It was the first time James did a score like that was the package. And you can look at, listen to the package and listen to Fugitive. There's a lot of connections there. Uh, he also did a perfect murder later after that. But um, um, why is it still so successful? I think it has to do with its rhythm. It doesn't slow down. You, you have to work to follow what's going on. It's very interesting members of the cast, you know, that you followed. I think that you like hanging out with Tommy and all those marshals, Joey Pants, and, 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 and all the people around him who playing off of him. So...
0: Well, that that seems to be just cause I'm doing sort of a deep dive in your filmography recently, like a theme going through your work, especially with the package as well. Like you're you, you, you care about both characters. You understand both sort of looks at the world, their, their, their perspectives, and it builds throughout the tension builds until the end. And I think that's a, a marvel that you've put to screen. And it feels like you were perfecting the recipe until you got to The Fugitive, where I mean, clearly everyone loves that film, it won many awards. And uh, yeah, I tip my hat to you. I think it's a fantastic film. Well,
2: thank you, thank you, guys.
1: Appreciate it. I, I am curious. You know, you've never made a sequel to your to your work, but you know there were <clears> sequels <throat> to The Fugitive and also Under Siege. Did you ever consider it, or was it immediately like, no, I've told that story?
2: I, I don't. I think what's interesting the sequel to The Fugitive wasn't really a sequel. It was called U.S. Marshals. Yeah. And I was making, the same producer was producing that and producing A Perfect Murder. Right. So I had found this, this script at Warner's and I said, what do, why don't we do that? So I was busy doing, they, we literally had dinner together one night with Robert Downey Jr. and Joey Pants and Tommy. And we were with Michael Douglas and, and we, were, you know, we were working together in New York at the same time. Um, so I I, I haven't uh, really had, an, and I didn't want to do under, any Under Siege sequel with Seagal on a train. That was not of
0: interest to in me. Okay, well, just to wrap us up, I have a couple of questions from Twitter and then a question we ask everyone who comes on the show. Uh, one of the ones I had was from Clark76Gav, who asks, uh, basically, Tommy Lee Jones being in The Fugitive and sort of in three of your films, is that you casting him in the subsequent two films or did he, you know, you know, go to auditions and and pitch for the roles.
2: Oh no 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 no! no. <laughs> After we did the package together, which he didn't audition for, he just was offered the part. Um, I definitely wanted to use him again and again. I said we'd love to do another film with him. So you know, so that was that was just you know you develop a relationship with an actor, and um, and you want to continue that. I mean, certain Scorsese's done that with De Niro and other people, you know. And, and it's just interesting because when I see the package, there's a, there are a group of actors that they're from Chicago that carry through in so many of those films that we did there, you know, and and becomes an ensemble almost. You know, if, if, when I get to Chicago, I can get together with eight or ten different actors who've all been to, in the same different movies together with me, which is really nice.
0: Was that the Pam Greer connection as well? Because she's in a couple.
2: Pam and I worked together when I was a young cameraman. And um, uh, it was, we were doing black action remakes of MGM pictures. Uh, and um, uh, she was fantastic back then. And then years later, I put her in the package and above the law. She's great in both. Yeah. She's really good above the law.
0: No doubt about it. She's fantastic. And the other question I had from Twitter was from uh, Space Odds 1985. And he asks, was the shooting of The Fugitive pressured or were the production stories exaggerated?
2: Hmm. The production stories?
0: Apparently, it, it, online people were saying it's, it was quite a pressured set uh, and the production was quite pressured. Was that true? People talk about that online.
2: I mean, was it pressured? We were doing a lot. You know, we were accomplishing a lot. We were shooting in the winter. We didn't have a script that was locked down. We were improvising um so i don't you know i don't i i i, I worked my butt off but it was great
1: mm-hmm.
2: great you know it, we, were, we were accomplishing a lot and things were looking good and uh and, and then that was the you know the big best thing for me
0: uh well before we wrap up a couple of questions left one i always like to ask is is there a film in your filmography that you feel didn't get the love it deserves and we can point people to go and check it out
2: it's, I do, but it's hard to find because it's hard to get. Steel, Big, Steel, Little was the film I did after the Fuji with Andy Garcia and Alan Arkin. So if you go to andrewdavisfilms.com, you can you can watch it. andrewdavisfilms.com has Stony Island on it, and it has Steel, Big, Steel, Little, and my documentary about the two great Italian photographers, the mentors, Mentor documentary. And uh, Steel, Big, Steel, Little, I, I, you know, it, They said, why is the guy doing The Fugitive doing these kind of, you know, uh, Frank Capra movies, right? It was based upon a documentary I had done about a land fraud case in West Virginia and adapted it to Santa Barbara. But it's a wonderful, heartfelt movie, and I think it's very relevant, especially for the Latin community, uh, because it deals with Andy Plant. Two brothers and Alan Arkin's great. I think it's one of like, Alan Arkin's best performances. So it looks really great. It's all beautiful shot in Santa Barbara. So see Steel Big Steel Little AndrewDavisFilms dot com.
0: Perfect. We'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes below, everyone, so you can click down there and check that out. All right, Great. Yeah,
2: and then and then the, and Stony Island. Stony Island is another one. The two my first film, which there's there's a the making of Stony Island. You can watch for free with Chuck D and and uh, Quincy Jones talking. It's a documentary, a 30-minute documentary, about how we made that movie, which is really cool. It's about a white kid growing up in a black neighborhood, putting an R&B band together, based on the true life of my brother, who's a great musician today. And then the mentor documentary, which we did a couple of years ago, is about these two fantastic. Uh, Italian photographers who had an amazing relationship to each other, helping each other through the years, who shot the most famous pictures in the world, with Sophia Loren, world leaders, and all kinds of stuff. So very, very worthwhile.
0: Well, final question, Andrew, before we let you go. And everyone who's been on the show has been asked this question. It's very important. Now, we tackle spy movies every week, and we need to know, Andrew, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? Wow. It's a loaded question, it always is.
2: I don't know if you could call it a spine.
0: Okay. Go on. Go on.
2: But it certainly has a fabric of all of the themes that we're talking about, the nukes and package and, and that would probably be strange love.
1: Right,
0: yeah. Yeah. hmm hmm No, we count that. Excellent film. Yeah. Behind the
2: scenes, you know, it's, it's, it's a it's a classic, you know. And Peters you know, it, it, that, that movie captured a kind of wonderful darkness and reality at the same time with a, with a wink, you know. Three Days of the Condor, another one. Another the,
1: Christmas movie.
2: Yeah, another Christmas movie, yeah. Yeah, those are two great ones. Yeah, it, 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 conspiracy movies. Spy movies, wow. Well, Battle of Algiers.
0: Mm. Wow, that's a new one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, because like you get it. people
2: s- observing and looking and checking on each other. and yeah.
0: Three great picks there. Um, now, you mentioned you're working on a book. Is there anything you can tell us about that before you go?
2: Yes. It's, 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 we just finished writing a novel, and I hope to make it into a movie someday. It's called "Disturbing the Bones, and it's, it's, it's set at, against an archaeological dig in southern Illinois where a young archaeologist discovers the, remains of somebody who was murdered years before. And um, it turns out it's, it's a black cop from Chicago who has to come down and investigate what happened to his mother. But what's really going on is uh, the, the reason that she's doing this archeological dig is because they're building a road to a new military site. And the military site is what monitors all of the Soviet, Russia, the Russian missile testing. Anyway, there's a terrible accident that takes place. And what you find out is that well, they were digging in the ground to find the case of a murder, they discover a conspiracy to end a peace conference. Somebody has their own missile in Southern Illinois.
0: Well, if there's ever a man that's going to do a conspiracy story, it would be you, to be fair. Yeah. This, is, this is the conspiracy
2: stories of conspiracy stories. So then, yeah, that, that's, what's, that's what's going on.
0: Perfect. Well, uh, Andrew, I want to thank you sincerely for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you both.
2: Appreciate the work you did looking into this character here and uh, let me know when I can watch it.
0: For sure. Will do. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. There you go, folks. What a way to top off our Christmas celebration with a chat with Mr. Andrew
1: Davis. Cam, how was that for you? This was a like real genuine thrill for me um, because when I was, you know, really getting into movies in the early nineties, Andrew Davis was one of the first directors I really knew the name of. And I, knew that it meant quality because of Under Siege and The Fugitive. So it meant that I was going to see really well done action. And so to be able to talk to him about a movie that I didn't know existed at the time, you know, we caught up with the package many years later, but to be able to talk to him about that film, and then those formative movies of my, you know, younger years, was just, this is kind of why these interviews are so much fun sometimes for me.
0: Yeah, this is absolutely why we do this. I mean, not only does it give an opportunity to sort of learn the behind the scenes of some of the films that we tackle, which is, you know, a very interesting and important insight, because a lot of the stories that we hear in these interviews are not on Wikipedia. They're not out there. I mean, there's not even a, a commentary track for this film on its, like, digital releases. This is as close to a director's commentary of the package that you're ever going to get. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, But yeah, like, and of course, The Fugitive, Under Siege. All good films to talk about, but I was very fascinated to learn about the package because, like I mentioned, Wikipedia, you look up the film, there's barely any trivia, there's barely any behind-the-scenes information. I had no idea that Gene Hackman was cast before Andrew was even brought on
1: board. That was a revelation. Yeah, that one genuinely surprised me because when you go through, you know, Andrew Davis's work, there's so many stoic, kind of like hard-edged leading men in his movies, whether it's, you know, Seagal, whether it's Tommy Lee Jones... Um, you know, Chuck Norris, Kevin Costner, there's a certain type that are typically, you know, the the leads of his movies. And I would have assumed that Gene Hackman would just be part of that, that sort of personality that he's maybe drawn to as a leading man. But it was, yeah, a real surprise for me as well to find out that, no, Gene Hackman was already signed and sealed and that uh, it wasn't a case of Andrew Davis, you know, picking him out um, to star in the movie.
0: But, you know, we, we spoke about it in the review. I think the use of Gene Hackman was, was fairly genius in this film. I mean, does it make sense that there was a 50-year-old sergeant in the army? Maybe not. But the gravitas that Gene Hackman brings to a performance, especially around this sort of period of his career, late 80s, early 90s, is exactly what this film needed. I don't think having a little, like, 20-year-old running around doing it, or, or, like, you know, Bruce Willis diehard sort of around the same sort of time, I guess mid-30s. I don't think it would have worked as well because you needed to have that sort of seasoned vet going up against the system. He's seen it. He's seen how it's all falling apart. And I think that's what really works with this.
1: Yeah, and it's something we didn't talk about in the review episode, which is that like while, yeah, as you say, like maybe he's a little old to be doing some of the, uh, some of the stuff he does in this movie in terms of a character. At the same time, there's like an experience and sort of a wisdom to that character that makes the movie more suspenseful, I think, because that's there. It's someone who's very smart, which is a common theme throughout Davis's work, of very smart, uh, you know, protagonists and antagonists. I think, and also, like, moving on from Gene Hackman,
0: it's also interesting to hear about sort of the beginning of the relationship with Tommy Lee Jones, a, uh, a relationship that would extend into two more films. Arguably, Davis's two most successful films as well
1: yeah and he you know won uh an oscar tommy lee jones won an oscar for the fugitive so like that you know three movie relationship really culminated in a big celebration i guess at the end for tommy lee
0: and i think i we mentioned this too andrew in in the interview but one thing that stood out to me just sort of looking at his career is it really did feel like it was building momentum and to the point of the fugitive Like, he was perfecting that recipe. I said about the sort of secret sauce word I use, so I'll just use recipe to stay in sort of food analogies. But, you know, like, the sort of man on the run up against it, the fugitive, as it were. And it's interesting seeing sort of the beginnings of that in the package and something that would go on to be perfected, you know, in a different story in its own way. But there are a lot of similarities between the package and the fugitive.
1: Yeah, well, you can definitely see that he's a director who's learning from each project and bringing those strengths, those increasing strengths into the next movie. And they really pay off in that way. And I, um, you know, you just notice how efficient he is as as an action director. He was very modest in the interview, you know, when we asked him about um, just his skill at staging action. And that was something that like, even at the time, people really recognized that Andrew Davis was uh, superior to many of the other directors working in Hollywood. And he's someone who I consider, you know, in the likes of, say, like a John McTiernan, uh, some of these really great action masters of their time. And it's an art that I do think has been somewhat lost. There are fantastic action people out there now, you know, whether it's, you know, the John Wick guys. But, like, at a studio level, the people making these big studio, star-driven vehicles, staging action like In the Package or The Fugitive or Under Siege, That's a rarity that you just don't see as much nowadays, and there's a lot of, you know, um, rapid-fire editing or shaky cam or whatever you want to call it, various techniques to try to create this sort of chaotic action, but, you know, you go back to kind of that more old-school style, and, like, Davis is one of the best, and I, I do think it's a lost art to some degree. Yeah,
0: and we were uh, up against it with time with Andrew. He had a very busy day, so we had about 45 minutes with him. And I know you guys sent a lot of questions in. And I thank you for your questions. I tried to work as many as I could in sort of the general conversation. But there was one question um, from Space Oz 1985 who just wanted to know about Andrew's thoughts on sort of the current state of cinema. Um, and that's such a, and I, I kind of wanted to ask that question too, but it's such an open question. And, and I know you kind of briefly brought it up to him and he was very sort of forgiving of some of the films that are out here now but i bet someone of you know the caliber of his style of directing and the action that he's put forward would look at some of the other action films that are out now and just think like what have they done yeah but i'm not going to put words in the guy's mouth the other thing i I think was quite interesting uh, to talk about was you brought up this point cam was just how well andrew does his villains yeah Uh, And, you know, it's it's interesting, again, it's another sort of through line through his films, having these really great larger-than-life villains, but they have a believability to them all at the same time. Even even the sort of insane characters like Tommy Lee Jones in Under Siege, he's out there, man. He's pretty far out. (laughs) But you understand his motivation, and you almost could, in a way, put yourself in those shoes. Not necessarily to blow up the world,
1: but you know what I mean. Well, and they all seem very intelligent. Tommy Lee Jones in the package seems like an incredibly crafty, you know, experienced character. Someone who is able to elude, you know, Gene Hackman and authorities throughout the course of the movie. And that's something that I think really works through a lot of his action films and a lot of his movies as a whole is that he never plays his, you know, his leads or his villains as kind of like one-dimensional. There's an intelligence to them that just Amps up the tension that extra bit more. Absolutely,
0: and yeah. Before we wrap it up, uh, you know, just h- looking at his spy movie choices, we got a, a complete new one. I think we've had three days of the Condor before. Excellent choices on the knock List. Doctor Strange is definitely on our master film list. Is that the first time anyone's mentioned it as their favorite?
1: I believe so, because it's it has a lot of espionage elements. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely uh, one for us. It it's it's one. It definitely belongs. It's one that like. Maybe does it jump to people's minds initially as a spy movie? So yeah, we haven't heard that one mentioned. Also, Battle of Algiers has never been mentioned by someone when we've inquired about their favorite spy movies. So I am always very excited when films pop up that uh, you know we haven't heard before. That's always exciting. And you just think, like, you
0: look at directors out there, they're, they're studying film. It's their trade. I mean, there's a reason why Quentin Tarantino included a song from The Fastest Guitar Alive in one of his films.
1: He studied film. Yeah.
0: Someone else apart from
1: us has seen The Fastest Guitar Alive. Or you look at the car chase in the package, and it's very clear that Andrew Davis is a fan of The French Connection.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Um, but there you go, folks. That was our chat with, I mean, one of the most influential directors of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I'm thrilled we had the chance to speak with him. I want to thank Andrew again if you're listening. Thank you for
1: your time. But uh, Cam... I think we're doing something slightly special next week. Yes, we have another Spy Master interview that I think everyone is going to be very excited for. We are going to talk to Colin Salmon, who played Robinson in the Brosnan Bond era. I think this is going to be very, very cool. Yeah,
0: we started a bit of a trend last year when we spoke to Yvonne Zimmer about her time in a long kiss good night. basically, it, it's kind of the weekend between Christmas and New Year, so we won't be releasing a full review episode. We're gonna get a massive spy master interview and put it out there for you all to enjoy after you've eaten copious amounts of sweeties over the festive period. So uh, your mission? Should you choose to accept it is to join us next week and check out our Colin Salmon interview. Uh, if you like what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhearts. that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, on behalf of Cam and myself, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. <music>